This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. I'm Micah Bays. And I'm John Sextro. And uh, we're back here with Chapter 6. So Chapter 6, Micah, is uh, return, Returning the Boon. Um, which is a very interesting title, and it's it's sort of uh, very talked about when we when we get into the hero's journey. But I think you and I agreed that there was maybe two or three key aspects of this chapter, and we'll we'll probably start with uh, number one, which is the three phases of life. How did how did that sit with you, Micah, from a philosophy perspective? And I'll sort of recount the three phases that Dalio talks about. He talks about phase one being that you're you're born into this world and you're completely dependent on your parents and your teachers and whatnot. And they're imbuing knowledge and, and responsible for, for bringing you up. And then phase two is that you're a contributing member of society. You're working, you're taking care of yourself. You're probably taking care of others. And then phase three of life is when you're sort of done with, um, with gaining knowledge, you're done with trying to worry about earning a living because maybe you're transitioning like into retirement and you're sort of just free. You're free to um, live life, to enjoy life, to do the things in life that you want to do rather than things that the rest of people are expecting you to do or that you have to do. So how do these phases of life fit in from a philosophy? perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, from a philosophy perspective, you know, I don't know if philosophy itself has anything to say about it, but, uh, yeah, I think one, one interesting thing that that stuck out to me, or I guess the way that initially struck me was almost as if Ray was saying, here are the three ways that life, you know, here are the three stages that a hero's life must take. And it, almost sounded like um right the world was has been made this way that you know to be a hero you have to live through these three stages um, well i think he was saying more more specifically that yes everyone goes through the three phases but then on top of that on top of the three phases is the potential for this this hero's journey which i don't think he says everybody has to go through right okay so yeah maybe i Missed that part of it. Um, and I just associate the three stages with the hero's journey. Sure. You know? Um, and so it was kind of like, well, is that how life was made? And I put made in quotes there, um, not to invoke any necessarily kind of supernatural agent or something, but it just sounded like maybe the world or that, you know, our lives were designed to be or yeah, designed to be. Um, in three stages. Um, it was more just, I think, I suspect this is really what Ray is saying, that just circumstantially it turns out that we typically go through these three stages just because of, 
know, the resources we have and our skill sets at the various, various times in our life and so on. Um, so Ray, Ray sort of alludes to it and uh, addresses it specifically a little bit in this chapter, a little more in, in chapter seven, which we'll cover the next time. But he talks about where he is on those three phases and that he's, he's sort of at the point of writing this book is sort of at the end of phase two, where he's like winding down on his, his work life. And he's, and he's starting up his phase three, moving more into um, focusing on living life. And, and as they said in uh, that, that one movie um, with Robin Williams, uh, sucking the, the marrow from life, you know, uh, dead poet society was the movie. He's, uh, he's focusing on just like getting as much fun and value and, and, uh, enjoyment from life as possible at this phase. Right. But there were some key things that he talked about having to do. Like he had to transition off his responsibilities as the CEO of Bridgewater, which sounded like it was a tough, a tough thing to do. You know, he put this target out there like, Oh, Hey, in 10 years is, is, Roughly, you know, it could be a month, it could be a month, it could be a year, it could be 10 years. And, uh, and that, that, that was sort of a challenging thing for him to do. And there were some things that they, they learned along the way. Uh, but then he really gets into, um, discussing that hero's journey. And I, or, uh, bef- sorry, before we go on to hero's journey, we're going to talk about this idea of shapers because that's sort of where I think Dalio has this, has this realization of him being a shaper and what it means to be a shaper and uh, what that means in terms of what they called, ended up calling the Ray gap when they were looking at the, the act of replacing Ray as the CEO in the organization. And they sort of, sort of documented, you know, there are things that Ray does that we need to make sure we can account for because today we're not accounting for them. And a lot of those things went to the attribution of this, this role as a shaper and the way that they identified a shaper to me just to sort of boil it down to the, the nitty gritty was an individual who is visionary, who has ideas. Not only do they have great ideas, which is a lot to have in the first place, but then they have the intestinal fortitude and the drive and the desire to also execute that idea and that vision. And he calls out uh, a couple of well-known other shapers in the world, most notably Steve Jobs. Uh, I guess we could probably argue a little bit. I, I internally argued with myself about whether or not I really thought Steve Jobs was a shaper in this way, but also... Um, so why not? Uh, Bill Gates. Well, the thing that I, I thought about Steve Jobs and his shaperness was probably more about his success doing it than is he re- was he really a shaper. Um, I, I, I think... Historically speaking, and and Dalio talks a lot about the the Isaacson books uh, about Steve Jobs, which I've read. I've actually read all of the the Isaacson books about Steve Jobs, and there's another one on uh, one of my my big heroes, who is Ben Franklin, and uh, a third person, and the name is escaping me right at the moment. But um, talking about, he talked to Isaacson and recounted some of the history of Steve Jobs, and I think he's you know in the early days. Yes, he had vision. I think his execution was was rather poor, Steve Jobs, and I think that was what ended up, you know, causing him to be bounced out unceremoniously from Apple in the original days. But 
he recovered, came back, obviously, did, still did great things, visionary with the phone, iPhone, and, and all the iDevices and the execution there. So, you know, I just, I think it wasn't, it, he maybe wasn't always the greatest shaper, but he certainly ended up being a great shaper. Right. Um, I kind of wonder, though, you know, you talk about at least initially he wasn't a good execution good executioner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I wonder, you know, as uh, Ray talks about um, someone who goes on the hero's journey, right? There's certainly some trials that they experience and, you know, there's some lack of information, lack of knowledge that they have. And then going through like the abyss, right? They learn what they need to learn. So I don't know, right? Maybe Steve's, Steve Jobs' dismissal from Apple originally was his abyss, right? And then going through that, maybe he learned what he needed to to be a shaper. That's a to, great, to be a hero, I guess. That's a great point. I think uh, I think you're definitely right. And I know that one of the things that Dalio talks about, and he sort of laments, and of course, Steve Jobs' life shortened by his uh, pancreatic cancer, I think is what what killed Steve Jobs. But he never had a chance to document and sort of write down what were the principles that helped Steve execute the way he did things. And so what were some of the things that maybe he learned coming out of that that abyss from the Steve Jobs hero journey? I don't I don't know. I I don't know what we'll ever really know. Maybe some of that is unfortunately just lost with the man and lost to history. Right. Yeah, I certainly don't know. But Bill Gates, I thought, yeah, I mean, totally a shaper seemed like he, you know, had a vision for a company. He, he, I didn't, I don't know if I ever saw uh, Bill Gates go through an abyss and I'm not an expert on the life of Bill Gates. Mike, I don't know if you are, but if you put those two people side by side, you have Bill Gates who will say, um, doesn't seem to have gone through this hero's journey or this abyss anyway. I don't know what the abyss would have been. And then definitely Steve Jobs, who went through an abyss. So I guess there's, I don't know, where, how do we, how do we uh, resolve that? How do we, do we, can we decide, do you really have to go through the hero's journey? Right. Um, do you have to go, oh, do you have to go through the abyss to experience or have the hero's journey? Yeah, I mean, the abyss seems like it's the, like one of the fundamental components of the hero's journey. Right. What is what are the components of the hero's journey? It's a call to adventure, crossing the threshold, the road of trials, the abyss, the metamorphosis, the ultimate boon, and then returning to the boon, which are sort of the chapters that Dalio has the beginning of this book anyway. Right. Um, Yeah. Are those, as you were asking, right, are those each of those required steps in the hero's journey or are they, you know, is it possible to skip out on them, you know? Skip out on one, right? Maybe Bill Gates always had the knowledge he needed to have to avoid the abyss, right? And so he didn't need to learn anything. Um, but then, you know, if he misses out on the abyss, it seems like he also misses out on the metamorphosis. Um, so, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's some sort of abyss, even if it's not as pronounced as the one that Steve Jobs had. I mean, maybe. Uh, Maybe, uh, you know, maybe some bad windows, uh, software. Uh, yeah, it could be that, or it could version. be, it could have been like the antitrust, uh, trouble that Microsoft went through. 
at one point with the browsers and all of that. So, I mean, maybe there's, I, I'm, everybody has challenges that they deal with. They just may not be as pronounced as something like, and as public as something like what Steve Jobs went through. Right. I'm sure if we, well, I'm sure there's biographies or autobiography, autobiography by Bill Gates, and he probably talks about trials he's gone through. I'm sure he wouldn't say everything has been easy all the way through. Yeah. So, so Dalio deals with this as he's dealing with that Ray gap that they identify as he's, as Ray's trying to transition out of his CEO role. So if we go back to that for a second, they, they identify that the people that are trying to replace him are either like very good with vision or that they're very good with uh, execution, but they don't have, they don't have all of the things. And that's sort of where Dalio go, starts to go deeper into the, a lot of his research on on what what a shaper is and, and defining what that is, and I guess a, a key component of this was trying to fill in those gaps, those ray gaps with the the individuals that he was transitioning to, or finding someone so that they could split those things up. But you would imagine, or at least I do, from a CEO perspective, that some of the greatest CEOs are uh, are like really execution driven, right? And they want to do things the way they want to do them as opposed to like just carrying out someone else's vision. So they, but there are plenty of examples in the world. We mentioned a few of them where those people have, where people have both of those. But I think a lot of just industry level CEOs are just great at executing things. So they have, they have some of these, um, or, and maybe there are people that where they're, great visionaries that are CEOs. I don't know though. It seemed like to be a real good CEO, you have to be hard driving on the execution side of things. Right. And how hard driving, right. is a question. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that, you know, kind of stuck with me with, uh, this reading was, uh, in talking about shapers, uh, Ray mentions that oftentimes, um, Shapers can at least appear abrasive or inconsiderate. And right, he notes that that's a kind of standard or typical characteristic. Um, now, I don't know what he would say the frequency is. Well, 95% of shapers are appear inconsiderate or abrasive. Um, but certainly I know of stories, right, about Steve Jobs and his demand, right, for excellence. And, you know, there were complaints about how he would treat some of the other people he was working with when things they were designing or creating weren't up to his standards. And so, you know, one question is given that shapers typically at least appear abrasive or inconsiderate, what if someone wants to be a shaper, right? Do they just, and and let's say they find themselves being abrasive or inconsiderate, should they just accept that as a part of who they are and say, well, look, if I'm going to be a shaper, I've got to be this. Um, or else I'm not going to be a shaper. I'm not going to create great things. And so really the question here is, right, do the ends justify the means? Um, and there's also a question of, well, are those means, right, means of being inconsiderate or abrasive, are they really necessary to being having the success, the success at the shaper level, you might say? Would have been possible for Steve Jobs to have created Apple the way that he did if he had not been abrasive. And let's say he couldn't have. 
that Apple wouldn't be or couldn't be what it is today without being abrasive. If he could have known in advance that, hey, to make Apple what it is, I have to be abrasive. Should he have said, you know what? I'm not going to make Apple that way. You know, I'm not going to be abrasive just for that goal. Um, I'm going to accept that Apple's not going to be as good as it could have been because I'm going to treat people in a better way. I found this to be um, interesting and, and there's always, there's always sort of this thing that people hearken back to with uh, Henry Ford, where they say, you know, it took Henry Ford to make the automobile because if you would have asked pretty much anyone else, what you would have ended up with is a better horse drawn carriage. And what he created was something that was brand new uh, that no one really knew that they need it. And if he listened to all of the people that were maybe around him, they're saying, Oh, what are you doing that for? You know, just, just make the, the horse carriages better. And he's like, no, no, no. You know, and that I think is sort of some of that abrasive aspect that we're talking about here, Micah, where it's like, not necessarily that they're, that they're, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some part of it and with Steve Jobs, certainly where it's an abrasive personality and it's just hard to get along with sort of thing. But the other side of it is uh, just a, of a real clarity on the vision to, to the degree where you, you risk everything. You don't listen to, you don't listen very much to your critics or even to your supporting players around you who are saying things like, no, we, let's not do this. It's risky. You're like, nope, we're doing this. Sorry. Boom. We're charging forward. And I think it's that sort of uh, intestinal fortitude, that abrasiveness, where it's like, I'm not deviating from this. I believe so strongly in this that we're going to go do it. And I think that's how out of jobs we got something like the iPhone. You know, it was, uh, it was something brand new, something that we hadn't really seen before. Henry Ford in the automobile, something brand new. Um, and you have to have that, that willingness to set other people's input, feedback, um, to listen to it. But, but to ultimately decide, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this thing. I'm, I'm creating the automobile. Right. Yeah. And if that's the way we characterize abrasiveness you know, or inconsiderateness, then I would have much less problem with it. You know? But I'm definitely thinking more in terms of you know, harsh treatment of people. Um, and I think Dalio tries to, uh, tries, tries to play off of the two things as he's talking about it in the book because he, what he does is he talks about surveying a number of these people surrounding him today right? Bill Gates and Elon Musk and the rest of that crew and finding out that they all have that trait where they're, they're sort of laser focused on, on this and they, they don't hear, they're not willing to hear from people about it. So he talks about it being more that it's, it's not that they're mean to people, but it's not that they don't, they aren't very considering of what other people are saying. Um, and that, that, that's sort of how he, differentiates it from just being an asshole to having this very sharp vision without consideration for what those others are saying to you. Right. So he, uh, Ray realizes with these Ray gaps and whatnot, that there's, there's a certain amount of management that has to be systematized because it can't all be replaced, uh, or guaranteed at least replaced by individuals. So, you know, he wants to systematize it. And they're already, they've already, he says, very much systematized all of the, the like, um, uh, AI around 
trading and 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 futures and hedging and all of those things, right? All the things that go into the actual business of doing the business of Bridgewater. But what they haven't really systematized yet at this point in the book is he's talking about the management of the company. So what did you see in that, Micah? Yeah. Um, so I thought this was pretty interesting. You know, he, yeah, he talked about, yeah, they've already um, done a lot of systematizing of investment, you know, uh, decisions that they make. As far as managerial decisions, you know, um, they they don't they haven't really systematized that yet. Um, one of the things he pointed out was even though they really you know stress for their managers to know what their people are like, right? The people who they manage are like, so that they can know. All right, person A is you know of type X, and so we can expect that when they perform a certain job or task they're likely to have a certain outcome and you know his problem was that the managers weren't really diving in deep to what people they manage are really like they wouldn't you might say do the hard task of figuring out what they're like because you know they're worried about you know how it might make the other person feel or something and so this was causing problems at the managerial level because um, people weren't being put in the right places because they didn't really know what they were like. And so they couldn't know what type of outcome they would really produce. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash R forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. I'm, I'm, I imagine the people, the management wanted to do it, but without a set of like uh, guidelines or tools or, or whatever, some sort of systematized approach. It's hard to, it's hard to equally and effectively and even handedly execute that sort of a thing. It really comes down to individual managers and how well they can, they can do the thing. Right until you systematize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think it was, my recollection it was it was a both, right? Both they didn't want to offend the people they were, you know, analyzing, and at the same time, yeah, it also you know the decisions they would make. Each manager would be, you know, kind of peculiar to them as opposed to being something that's systematic. Um, and so then Ray said uh, they kind of had a breakthrough that they they realized they could use big data analytics and other algorithms uh, to connect the dots more efficiently, right? To connect, you know, and here when Ray talks about dots, uh, he's talking about um, certain characteristics or traits that someone has and what kinds of outcomes they're likely to produce in different types of situations. I think it's uh, worth pointing out to 
folks that are listening right now that um, one of the things that you can do to learn a little bit more about what Ray's talking about here is go out and watch the TED Talk that Ray does. And he specifically talks about about these dots, as he calls them, and how, how they connect these dots inside of his organization. Uh, so there are, some, there are some great insights that are in that TED Talk that you may want to sort of pause this and go check that out because it will help give you some more context about how they, how they end up systematizing this. Right. Yep. And uh, you know, he said, Ray said one of the bonuses with this is that the systems didn't have personal biases and emotional barriers to overcome. Um, you know, the computer isn't concerned about how someone feels when they're rated as, you know, not being honest or, uh, as being, uh, less than, let's say, persistent in getting their tasks done. The computer isn't going to be worried about making that judgment. Whereas someone else, right, a manager might be hesitant to make that judgment of their managee because they don't want to make the person feel bad. But the computer is not going to have that same problem, right? <laughs> they don't care. Um, uh, but what do, you, I did what, find do you, what do you think about that? What, for, philosophically speaking, that there's no that the the computer. I mean, clearly, a computer innately, digitally, doesn't have any bias. But the computer has to be like created by people, and people definitely have bias, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Ray said, yeah, he talked about yeah. There's even though computers may not be biased, you know, it, Ray wanted to, seems to be indicate that the computers, you know, this is almost like problem free. Um, now he didn't quite put it that way, but that's kind of how it read, right? Hey, we didn't have to worry about biases and so on. Um, but you know, in the news, it's becoming more prominent as algorithms are getting used for all sorts of things. Um, and AI is becoming more prominent. There have definitely been some news stories out about how, algorithms themselves can be, you might say, the result of bias, right? Because as you pointed out, the algorithms are ultimately produced by people and they're deciding what, at least what the initial algorithms are like. And then with machine learning, the idea is that the machine will come up with its own algorithms or refine the original algorithms that was given. Um, but um, you might say there's kind of two just general problems with this. So one, uh, with algorithms, there's a question about what inputs are important, and humans are the ones who make that initial decision. Right. Um, so, for example, with like the dots thing, there's a question of which characteristics should we evaluate people on? Which characteristics, traits, right? Punctuality, honesty, um, drive, that's kind of passion, those kinds of things determining which characteristics to evaluate. That's a human decision. Um, so that's where bias can come in. And then there's also a question about how we weight those things, right? Once we decide what traits are important, the question is how important do we weight them? And again, that's a human judgment. Now, the machines can alter those initial weightings, but Nonetheless, they're starting off with what we've given them. Um, and, you know, humans can work at making better and better and less biased uh, algorithms, but it's not as though there's no, no bias to start with. 
it's got to be tougher than just just because of the nature of it. It has to be tougher than creating an AI to say to be good at predicting, you know, uh, financial transactions and and investment sorts of things. Because there's a lot about uh, there's a lot about financial transactions and investments that are very black and white. They're they're numbers, um, dollars and cents, ups and downs, and uh, and that's pretty concrete like people wouldn't disagree on how much a stock went up or down or what the revenue was for a company those things are pretty clear uh, we could all agree on on those facts but when you talk about an individual you might have a different opinion of how trusting i am from others and and so the rating you provide could be um, more accurate than someone else's or less accurate and i guess over time you have to figure out from like this, as Ray calls it, connecting these dots, somehow compiling this and and weighting this all to figure some of that out. And of course, it's it's beyond my intellectual capacity, I think, to determine what these algorithms might look like. Uh, but you could you could see that it's problematic. There's there are humans involved in providing these ratings, so they're not going to be truth. There, they're not always going to be true or false. Yes. You categorized it correctly, or no? You categorized it incorrectly, right? Yeah, and you know, one example um, that we might give here is, um, so this was—I can't remember which company it is big tech tech company. Um, they had algorithms to help determine you know a person's likelihood of success in the company and you know moving up in the company. And what they realized was that the algorithm itself was biased because it weighted men as being more likely to be successful as to move up the ladder just based right so just based on gender but the reason was that was that historically men in that company have been have risen up in the ladder but well what's the reason for that right is it because of skills inherent to men that make them more likely or is it because well maybe some men were discriminating against women and so that's why right um, or maybe there's just more men in the company, and so they're more likely to make it towards the top. Um, so there's just a lot of variables that you know can play into an algorithm, and so you have to account for all those to make it unbiased. Yeah, and and the algorithm I don't think is this is interesting, and I think it could be like a whole a whole hour long discussion, Micah. But the algorithm itself, generally speaking, in the way we think of a bias. The algorithm itself isn't going to say, oh, I'm going to choose men over women, right? It would, but there's definitely bias that is feeding into the system. Now, but that doesn't mean that the algorithm is biased. It means that the world that's feeding into the system has a bias. It's not the algorithm's fault that it responds to that bias that feeds into it. Um, So it, maybe what it's predicting is actually accurate of what would happen in that case, Mm -hmm. even though what actually happens in that case is in the real world biased, right? It's act. It's accurately depicting what could happen or what might happen. Right. But not in a way that any of us think would be fairly would be fair. And that certainly not choosing more men over women would not be a fair way to do it, but it's accurately forecasting because that's what actually happens right very interesting yep and we could go on for an hour on this hours 
Definitely. Well, let's talk about uh, the hero's journey a little more and the part where we're sort of really returning to the boon. So returning to the boon is like that last stage in the hero's journey. And that's where Dalio sort of hopes that he is in, uh, in, in his, in his path on the hero's journey. So he talks a lot again about what it takes for, uh, for you to go on this hero's journey and going through that abyss and, and metamorphosizing and, and then returning to the boon is the part where you're like, I had my own boon. This really great thing happened. Now I'm going to give back. Right. So Dalio talks a lot about how he he's giving back. He talks about some of his philanthropic um, pursuits, definitely with uh, with the deep sea ocean sort of research stuff that he does. Also talks about the things that the rest of his family does in addition to his wife that she does some things with education. Um, but it's all about having gone through this hero's journey and now being ready at his phase, at this phase in his life to give back. So if I call someone a hero, it seems like in some way I'm wanting to, you know, set them up on a pedestal as someone to be emulated, uh, that, you know, what they're doing is great, uh, for the world. And, say, look, to the extent that people can live like that, it would be great if they did. Um, you might, some people may even want to say, well, they should live that way. But for me, the interesting thing was actually in a footnote of Ray's um, in the book where he wants to say, well, not only does he not want to say that the heroes, that someone who lives a hero's life is living a better life for themselves because he says yeah, there's actually a lot of troubles that come with the hero's life. Uh, so they may actually be worse off, um, right? Because for a while, at least, they're choosing to not save her life. Um, but also, he doesn't want to say that they are living the better life, uh, you might say, for the world. And that strikes me as odd, mm. um, why he wouldn't want to commit to that. So um, you know, I'm just thinking of people who we might say are heroes and wouldn't we say that the world is better off because they've lived that way. Right. Um, so popped into my mind, like Schindler's list, right. Oscar Schindler saved all of these, uh, people and right. He certainly could have not done that. And I want to say, yeah, the world, he lived a, might say, I'm going to say more virtuous life, a better life. Maybe it wasn't better for him. Now, maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't better for him. But nonetheless, it made the world better. That was a better life. You know? um, Interesting to hear you characterize it in this way. And I think we could all agree that Oscar Schindler was heroic. Uh, I think that a lot of the a lot of the reference to hero in this case is speaking in terms of a main character and you being you in this case being that main character or anyone we pick out being the main character, like the hero quote unquote from a book or the hero from like a video game where it's, it's the, the arc and the story of, of that person's life and that the journey that they go through. And therefore, because we refer to that main person as the hero, we refer to it as the hero's journey. And um, sometimes those people, whoever it is are doing something that is also heroic. Uh, but I, I think it's, I think that uh, it's just a way to refer to the main individual in this case. Okay. 
And we could probably dig deeper into that by, by referring to like Joseph Campbell's the hero with a thousand faces. And is what is he referencing? Is he really referencing somebody who is heroic or is he referencing just a person and calling them the hero? I don't know. Right. I have not read that book, but um, if you're reading this book, you'll know that, you know, Ray has mentioned Campbell's book um, several times. Well, so a lot of uh, the return to the boon that, that it gets talked about in the book is, is focused on how Dalio wants to give back to the world, including the book. Um, and then also his other philanthropic endeavors, which we alluded to briefly. So Micah, you had some things you wanted to comment on yeah, I thought, about philanthropy. 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 Um, so one interesting thing, it just took me back to my the ethics courses I used to teach. Um, but he talked about, you know, at one point we've mentioned this before, I believe, but you know, he, his son, uh, lived in China for a while. And as a result, he actually started a charity. And in this chapter, Ray talks about how his son took him to China to see the, um, orphanages and the, the, uh, charities that he was supporting. And Ray talks about, you know, as a result of this, they become, became aware of the life and death money decisions that were constantly being having to be made by the charity um, where, you know, you could take $500 and either save or radically improve a child's life. And Ray was noting that. So now there's this kind of constant decision of, well, I could go out and have a really nice meal with the family, um, right. Or really nice evening out or something, or I could save a life and, you know, there's this constant tension. And so what's interesting to me is um, that's not a decision that just Ray has to make. Um, there's a very famous article in philosophy uh, in ethics in particular by Peter Singer, who's a utilitarian uh, who thinks we have a moral obligation to maximize happiness um, called famine, affluence, and morality. Um, so let me just start out by asking you a question of, uh, John, I'm going to give you a scenario. Okay. Suppose you just went to a suit store, bought a suit, and you're wearing it at home, and you're walking home in your new suit. You come across a pond, and there's a kid drowning in the pond. And you realize that to save this kid, you would need to jump into the pond, you know, suit and all, right? You're not going to take the time to unbutton all of your suit and everything to jump in the pond. Right. You know, if you're going to save him, you've got to jump in. Right now. Yeah. You're going to ruin your suit, right? Okay. Let's say it's really mossy, yucky, dirty, you know. No recovering the no suit. Recovery, the right. suit's going to be a total loss. Yes. Okay. What are you morally required to do in that case, do you think? Save the kid. Save the kid. Jump in, right? Not even a question in my okay. mind. All right. So what would you say of someone who didn't jump in? Uh, oh, boy. Uh, I, ha I, I guess I would have to say that uh, they have a different set of morals and ethics and priorities than I have. Okay. Would you say they've acted morally wrong? It's, it's hard for me to make a judgment of another person in that way. I don't know all of their circumstances, but ultimately I think I, that definitely would go through my brain. Okay. And actually I can, ooh, I can simplify this. What would you say about yourself if you failed to jump in? I would feel that I had acted inappropriately. Okay. Um, so John, did you know that there are starving people in this world? I am aware. And um, 
Would you say that you have any luxuries that you could give up? Most definitely. Right? I'm guessing, right, your car, I don't know what kind of car you drive, but whatever it is, I'm guessing you could buy a lesser car than you currently have. Yeah. And you could take that saved thousands of dollars and, you know, pay, give the money to a charity that would actually go out and provide food to starving people. Yes. But you don't. Yes, you're right. You are the man in the suit who doesn't jump in the pond. Yes. That's what Peter Singer argues. Um, right. And you know, likewise, right. So of course this is all for fun. Well, not for fun, but uh, for, for illustration maybe here. fun for you. <laughs> so I was going to say, you know, I'm in the same boat as you, right. In this case, right. Yeah. Certainly I have some things that I possess that I could give up to save the life of others. And I don't. Right. Um, and so the question is, is that true? Is that our moral obligation? If it is right, we're constantly failing our moral obligations. We're choosing luxuries over the lives of others. Um, and so, right, this is just a question for listeners as well. Do you all think that we have obligations, right, to help the starving and we have an obligation to give up our luxuries, right, for that? If so, we're constantly failing. Wow, that's deep. And uh, we should all feel horrible right about now. I'm Probably guessing. so. I feel horrible. <laughs> I have to uh, turn in all of my all of my unneeded items, but the, the, you bring up a good point and it, it's one of those things where, um, you, you, you can, you, I don't know. It, it maybe is it morally defensible to say, what about my well being And don't I get to, um, have some happy. Right. Uh, so I mean, I, I can't I, be responsible for, for everyone else. Right. Um, so one, I mean, I'm not a utilitarian like Peter Singer, um, and you know, he's what's just want to say you'll give up your luxuries, right? Um, now you might argue, well, I can't have happiness without my luxuries, and then we can, you know, think through that, right? Debate that for another hour, <laughs> right? right? Might, might want to bring in some psychology and so on. Um, I mean, I, I, it's tough, right? I, I want to make a distinction between what we are obligated to do and what's, you know there's a fancy word called super erogatory, um, like what's above and beyond what's required. I mean, I guess I want to say, I don't know that we have an obligation perhaps, um, but we would also be better people the more that we did it. Well, that that's pretty deep. So I, I suggest we leave it right there and let, let everyone ponder how they're doing with uh, in, 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 in these terms. And, and we'll be back uh, the next episode to discuss Chapter 7. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles, at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.